in this last message of the series, we come to the last season of Solomon's life. And although he started well, he didn't finish well. Solomon, as we'll see today, went totally off the rails later in his life spiritually. And that's why I've given this message a title I've never titled a message before. Just don't go there. Don't go where Solomon went. So it starts right here in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Kings. King Solomon, however, now in the previous verses, talked about all in his wealth and wisdom, all that Solomon had accumulated and accomplished. But King Solomon, however, and our hearts begin to sink here, he loved many foreign women. Now, that's not a misogynistic statement. That's not a racist statement. That, that is a statement of the wandering of his hearts. And, and this is where God's going to say, don't go there. Don't go there by letting, by letting your spiritual habits drift. Don't go there by letting your affections wander. Don't go there by even letting your disillusionment with life begin to deconstruct your faith. Solomon would end up going all of those ways. And it started with the fact that his life was probably sexually out of control. And it said he loved many foreign women. And here's the problem with that. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And their gods involved demonism, what we call today the, the occult, the paranoial, paranormal, uh, the worship of idol gods in the surrounding nations involved many dark, demonic things. It involved sexual exploitation of human beings and even human sacrifice. And you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. That's what the law of Moses had said. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. In verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth. Whew. Man, it's a lot of wedding rings. <laughs> and 300 concubines, those were live-ins who quite didn't have the status of wives. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his hearts after other gods, not the creator God, not, not the God that he built a temple to in Jerusalem, not the true and living God, but to other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. And gets unpacked a little more in verse 7. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable God of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed and offered sacrifices to their gods. And that word detestable for Chemosh and Molech was almost an understatement because it was true of the worship of both of those gods that they not only indulged in human sacrifice, but they would pass their children through the fire and burn them alive as sacrifices. And we're told by historians that the idol priests, while the children were burning alive in the flames, 
would pound drums really loudly to stifle and to muffle the screams of the children. This was pure incarnate evil. And this Solomon, who so wholeheartedly, extravagantly started his young life, devoted to the Lord with all his heart, he ends up here. And I've served the Lord for 40, 50 years, and I started in Chi Alpha, and um, I ended up not being the engineer I really tried to be, but in full-time ministry. And I, um, I've loved the Lord since I was a kid. But there's nothing in me that would be so self-confident as to say in the next 10 years the same thing couldn't happen in my life. And it says in verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. I mean, God literally appeared to Solomon twice. And yet his heart could still go off the rails. And it was a few years earlier that Solomon had written that amazing proverb. A friend of mine put this on his T-shirt, and everyone in his family has this T-shirt, and it's a good one to keep right in front of you. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. You say those three words with me? Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Solomon says, above all else. I don't know if he had a premonition of the battle he'd be facing in his own heart. But above all else, he said, guard your heart. Because everything in life comes out of it. So guard your heart. But he doesn't. And I just feel like the Lord wants to say to all of us, uh, don't go there. Don't go where his heart went. Don't go there by, by for instance, Letting your spiritual habits drift. This is what happened in Solomon. He had built the temple. He had, he had set up all the, the rituals of worship in the temple to the true and living God. All of those rituals were symbols of what Jesus would fulfill in the new situation that we have in Jesus today. And, and he undoubtedly stayed true to all of those things he would have built good spiritual habits in his life that would have resolved, revolved around the, around the worship of the temple. But listen to me. He began to drift. His spiritual habits started to go other directions. All of the things of temple worship began to slowly be less and less a part of his life. And more and more as he married, more and more women who were devoted to demonic gods pretty soon his heart started to drift, to drift in the direction of those worship habits. And he left the spiritual habits that, connect, that kept him connected to God. Jesus put it this way in John 15. When he had his followers around the table the night before he was crucified, he said, I, Jesus, am the vine. So he gives us a metaphor. It's not hard to understand this. If you could imagine standing right here is a vine or a trunk of a tree. And it has branches, that vine has branches on it. And he said, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. You, my followers, you're the branches. And what's significant is that you're connected to me, so there's a transaction of life that's taking place. If you remain in me, or some translations say, if you abide in me, 
and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And he says, but, but if you don't remain in me, in other words, if your branch kind of breaks off or gets cut off, and your branch comes over here, so there you have the trunk there and the branch here, what's going to happen? Everything on that branch is going to wither and die because it's not connected to the life source. So he says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that's thrown away, it withers, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That means they're useless. So the heart drifting question for us when it comes to our spiritual habits, the first one is, what is, what is keeping me connected to Jesus' life? And the answer to that question is probably going to be a set of spiritual habits. Sometimes we call these spiritual disciplines. I hesitate using the word discipline, although that's the right word, but but sometimes the word discipline just right up front makes us feel like, oh, I've fallen short, and we just get bogged down with guilt. And God wants to get you past just feeling bad. You don't, you don't sort of match up. Because sometimes we look at these spiritual disciplines like, like they're the way I get brownie points from God. They're the checklist, and there's something wrong with me if I can't just check off every box every day of all these things I ought to be doing. And you have to complete, I had to eventually in my life completely reframe this. It's not like, it's not like a bunch of duties I'm under, profession, I'm under pressure to perform. But my spiritual habits have everything to do with my hunger for God. And the answer to the question, what is it that keeps me on a daily and weekly basis connected to the life of Jesus so that I don't start literally withering on the vine or withering separated from the vine. What is it that keeps me separated to the life of Jesus? And these are things that, that you know, for me, they're things like getting God's word in my heart and not because I have to, because I'm hungry for him and I want to hear his voice. There, there are spiritual disciplines of solitude. My wife and I have a friend who is a Chi Alpha pastor in another part of the country. She, she is, her family's desperately in need of God's intervention, and so she is practicing solitude. She said, I so need to hear the voice of God that, that I need to do things to quiet other voices. So she has sworn off social media right now. She is just not even going there because she needs to just focus on listening to the voice of Jesus and staying connected to his life. The question is, are you connected to his life so that something is blossoming in you of Jesus' life rather than withering? This is not something to feel guilty about. This is not duties to check off. This is staying connected to the life of Jesus. For me, I get grumpy sometimes. It's, it's trying to walk in gratefulness all day. To me, it's what I talk about all, all the time, walking in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, just being, doing things to stay focused on the awareness of God's presence like all day, not just 20 minutes in the morning when I might pray, but all day, walking, conversation with him. For me, it's gratefulness rather than just grumpiness. For me, it's praying in the Spirit like all day, praying in tongues, praying, just staying aware that God's walking with me, and I want to live in the conscious presence of God. It's not always emotional, but we have these things, we have these spiritual habits that keep us connected to Jesus. And, and they're a little bit different for all of us because we're all wired differently. We have different personalities. And, and, and so these spiritual habits are probably unique to you, but the bottom line is, are you staying connected to the life of Jesus? And Solomon let those spiritual habits drift. The things were connecting him 
to the true creator God, the true and living God, he was letting those things drift as his heart got lured other directions. And so the follow-up question to that would be, what, where, if I am drifting, where do I need to repent for my own spiritual carelessness? And repent means don't just bog down feeling bad that you fall short and that you've gotten spiritually careless. It means deal with it. It means come to Jesus, come clean, say, God, I've been really careless lately. Um, I'm kind of, I, I know people have told me, Pastor, there was a day I used to really seek God. I used to fast and pray, and yeah, I have a job and all that, but I knew what it was to walk in God's presence. And I've become very careless these last few years. And I was reading, I was reading of a lady writing how, how that God just, she repented, and God just began to convict her, and she started doing those things she used to do to really stay alive in Jesus. And, and how that, how that like, like the power of the Holy Spirit's coming back into her life again. And God's using her in ways she hadn't, hadn't before. I mean, this starts with more than just feeling bad. It, it says, God, forgive me for my carelessness. I'm going to come back to you. And this is the doorway to revival. Our church here at Central traces our history back to revival in Los Angeles in 1907 that lasted for three years, the Azusa Street Revival. Frank Bartleman wrote a lot about it, and he laid the prayer foundation for that revival. And he said the year before that revival started, in 1905, he said, I received the following keynote, this following word about revival. And it was simply that here's what I heard from the Lord. The depth of revival will be determined exactly by the depth of the spirit of repentance. And this will hold true for all people at all times. And that's right. That's why Peter would, in the life of the very first church, he would, he would get up and preach to his city, and he would say, repent then. In Acts 3, repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out. Why? And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance is a door. It makes the way for the Lord. And, and we need to deal with our spiritual carelessness, not in careless ways. We need to come before God and grieve over our distractions and our half-heartedness that seeped into our lives. It's so dangerous. Everything is out to, to work against the spiritual habits that keep you connected to Jesus. Don't start just with self-will. Start with repentance and say, oh God, give me a new heart. And let, let times of refreshing begin to come into your life. Jesus will help you this. I mean, the psalmist said, Lord, revive our hearts so that we may seek after you. I mean, he comes and he does something to help us with all this stay connected stuff that needs to be an ongoing part of our lives. But Solomon went off the rails when it came to his spiritual habits. Don't go there. And he also went off the rails when it came to his affections, the affections of his heart. And I want to say to you today, in the name of the Lord, don't go there by letting your affections wander. I think it's the biggest battle we face, the battle for our affections. What do we love? 1 Kings 3, verse 3 Early in Solomon's life, it said Solomon loved the Lord. He loved the Lord. He started just his passion for his God and to serve him. And, 
And he was young and full of energy, yes, and sometimes that does help us. It says, as he grew older. Remember we read that? As he grew older. Well, his affections started to wander until eight chapters later and several decades later. It says in 1 Kings 11, 1, the verse we started with, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. And it's the same word in the Hebrew for love. It's the word ahab. And it has everything to do, its root meaning has everything to do with our affections. And it just grieves me to put 1 Kings 3.3 and 1 Kings 11.1 side by side like you see on the screen in front of you. Solomon loved the Lord. But this, but don't go this way to the place where his affections had so reoriented that he loved things that weren't of God. He loved evil. In Hebrews 1.9, describing Jesus, it says, You, Jesus, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above all your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. I want to go, when it comes to affections, and, and he uses uh, the word love here. Uh, of course, this was written in Greek, the, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It translates that same word, ahab, in Hebrew in the Old Testament, which includes our affections. It says, Jesus, with all his will and with all his affections and with all his loyalty, he set his affections on righteousness, on things that were holy, and he hated wickedness. Like a friend of mine who was a firefighter in search and rescue, a tough guy, and he loved Jesus, and he'd lead other strong men to Jesus. But he came up to me after church one Sunday morning, and he, he opened his journal and said, see what I wrote in my journal. I was up to visit one of my aging mentors in the hospital, and he was lying in his hospital bed, and my mentor looked me in the eye and said, John, every morning when you get up, you need to pray, Lord, help me to love what you love and hate what you hate. I mean, there's a battle for our affections. That's why John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, 15 and 16, do not love this world. This word, the same Greek word for love that translates ahab in the Old Testament. Don't set your affections on this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, there's not shared space with God. He said, when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Well, what's loving the world? I mean, I can't enjoy a beautiful sunset. That has nothing to do with it. So he does tell us what loving the world is. And it has to do with our affections. He'll call them in this translation, New Living Translation, cravings. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. That's lust and a craving for everything we see, that's greed, and pride in our achievements and possessions. That's a craving to live a self-absorbed life. I just want for me possessions and achievements. And he said, these are not from the Father, but they are from this world. And he writes actually a church, John does. He writes believers and says, look out, there's a battle out for what you crave 
You know, and our affections are shaped by the things we pay attention to. Our, atten- our affections are shaped by the things that we're constantly distracted to, by, but begin, begin to be more attention-grabbing than the things of the Lord. I mean, I, I was with a group of pastors last week, and I just said to them, I never want to love leadership more than I love Jesus. I never want to love the car I drive more than I love Jesus. My affections need to stay. I mean, at other levels, I love my family, I love my job, I love all of these things. But there is something about our affection. Our affections are shaped by the things we preoccupy ourselves with, by the things we're constantly paying attention to. Our affections are shaped by the things that constantly entertain us. The places where our minds and hearts spend hours and hours and hours. That's what shapes our affections. And everything in this world is out to create in you an appeal to every craving you have. Lust, greed, self-absorbed pride. Our world today would say money, sex, and power. These cravings cause Solomon to go off the rails, especially his sexual cravings. He was probably a sexual addict. And he held fast in affection or love to foreign women. He held fast to them who led them to horrendous, him to horrendous idolatry. Don't go there. Don't go there by letting your spiritual habits drift. Don't go there by letting your affections wander. And don't go there by I need to close with this one because I see it happening all around me and it was probably a secondary cause of Solomon's backsliding. Don't go there by letting your pain deconstruct faith in your life. You don't have to be much more than 16, 18 years old and you start experiencing a little disillusionment and already your friends have hurt you and you're beginning to taste what pain's all about. And you get older, you've been around the block a few times. You start to accumulate, to be honest, prayers that God hasn't seemed to answer yet. And you've been hurt in ways you're sure you don't deserve. And life, that myth that life will be fair to me, just gets demolished by the time you're 30 years old. And you can become cynical. I'm not by nature a cynical person, except that it worries me how much I've noticed the last 10 years, I can be way more cynical than I used to be. Because I've seen a lot of life. I know far too many people. And you can become cynical. And I've gotten hurt. And I've had some things happen to me I don't think I deserve to have happen to me. But they happen to me. And God hasn't answered some of my questions. And the problem with our pain And the problem with cynicism is that it begins to distort all of life. I read you the first four words of Ecclesiastes 2 last week. After, in this book of Solomon, which is so cynical, he says, I hated life. I hated life. Let me read the rest of the verse to you. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, all of it meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated life. 
And Solomon had everything he wanted, and, and he found it just left him empty. And of course, his heart's beginning to drift from the Lord. And, and pain and, and, and cynicism start to distort his perception. And he starts coming to the wrong conclusions, even about God. And this is a sinister road that pain will take us on. In, in Psalm 73, verse 21, Asaph talks about his and Solomon would have known Asaph personally. Asaph was one of the main worship leaders in Israel that worked with Solomon's father. And Asaph chronicles for us a major crisis of faith that almost upended him. And later, he reflects back on it after it's resolved. And he said, he said, I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. And most of us know at some point in our life what that feels like. We're just all torn up inside. And he said, here's what it did to me. It made me about as dumb as a senseless animal, he says. He's being rather frank with us. He said, I started coming to all the wrong conclusions. That's why you should never make your final decisions about God while you're in pain. Because we can think with our pain much more than we think with our brain. Pain will distort all reality. You should never make a major life decision when you're really hurting. Because pain has this way of lying to us, lying to us about God, lying to us about ourselves, lying to us about other people. Pain is a liar, and it distorts everything in our lives. And, and Solomon goes through this incredibly cynical, like, I just hated life. I just, I, I just was mad at everything in life. I hated it all. And he begins to have a serious distortion in all of his, all of his perceptions. And this is the stuff that the deconstruction of faith is made out of. I know people, even used to worship God in this church and other churches I've been a part of, who have just so deconstructed they won't have anything to do with him anymore. And part of it was spiritual habits they got careless with. Part of it was just their affections started to wander to other things. And part of it was they couldn't put two and two together when they were in pain and come up with God still there. I, I think the way we fight that, I'm going to be brief and quick here, but I think the way we fight that, I'm going to give you three verbs, lament and seek and trust. First of all, if you're really struggling and pain is just making you sh not sure what to do with your faith, like where is God? Why did he allow this to happen? Why are my prayers, some my, why are we praying for Ukraine and the Russians are still bombing the living daylights out of that country? I mean, where is God? I mean, this is stuff that we have to remind ourselves God's always doing more than we think he is. <laughs> but, but we grieve. My heart's been heartbroken these last few weeks. I've been angry in my heart. But there's a place of lament. You read half the Psalms and, and the Psalms are, God, life's so terrible right now. And I feel so bad. God gives you permission to put words to that. Sometimes you have to grieve to work through, to work through pain in a healthy way. And, and then seek God. You lament, but don't bog down there. Give yourself room to grieve. Protest to God if you have to. It's fine. He can handle that. 
and even ask your why questions. But the seeking posture, built on the lamenting posture, says that God, I'm not going to let my pain derail me. Rather, even if you're not answering my why questions, I know you'll answer the where question. Where can I find your presence? Where can I find you? Because you're always with me. So where can I find your hand? When I'm really hurting and God's not answering the why question, why do you let this happen? I found he loves to answer the where question. God, but where is your hand in the middle of all this? Where are you setting up a new meeting place with you? Where is your presence? And then you trust him and you stubbornly hold the ground of faith. I'd like to worship community if they come and prepare to lead us. Michael Card, in his wonderfully inspiring book, although it's got a sad, sad title, A Sacred Sorrow, he says, we see in Job, who protested to God that all kinds of bad things happened to him that he didn't deserve. He said, we see in Job one of the most fundamental lessons we will learn from lament. The fact that the act of lamenting and protesting and even accusing God through prayer is still an act of faith far from denying the existence of God. We, we can't let pain take us to the conclusion there must be no God. We can't deconstruct and melt down in our faith. But he said that even the prayer of protest, far from denying the existence of God, it cries out on the basis of an appeal to the living God's loving kindness, in spite of the fact that the present conditions would suggest otherwise. He goes on to say, in Job, we discover a person who will simply not let go of God in spite of death, disease, isolation from friends and family, and ultimately a perceived abandonment by God. Those around him, including his own wife, pled for him to let go and die. Curse God and die, she said. But Job, like Jacob, faithfully holds. He faithfully holds on in the wrestling match of his life. We don't need to let even pain or cynicism or the kind of disillusionment that Solomon tasted deeply of cost us a relationship with the living God. But there's one thing that your pain doesn't change. It's his loving kindness and the possibility of his presence with you right now. And there's nothing of your guilt that can stand in the way of the living God because Jesus, God's Son, came and died on the cross for us to take it all away. And when he died, that the cravings of our lives were, were crucified with Christ. And that means he has the power to put to death all the things that will lead you off the rails spiritually and to give you a love for righteousness, to give you a heart for God, to give you a hunger that'll keep your spiritual habits strong and focused, that'll keep your affections from wandering to other things, and that will help you know that he's there no matter what you're experiencing right now. So Father, I pray that you will help us. Help us not to go where Solomon went. Help us not to go there. Help us not to let our spiritual habits drift. If so, we repent, Lord. We ask you to forgive us, oh God. You know our hearts better than we know. We're unimpressed with our hearts. But Lord, we thank you that you transform our hearts. And if we've lost our hunger for you, we pray you'll restore it again. That we'll repent and times of refreshing will come. In Jesus' name. Lord, if our affections have gone after things that grieve your heart, 
oh God, for the sake of our spiritual lives and for the sake of your glory. God, help us not to love the things of this world. We repent, we come back to you. Transform our hearts. Help us to be like Jesus who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And Lord, if our pain has made us lose sight of your presence, my God, help us not to lose faith, but help us to stand more strongly than ever. Hallelujah. Here in your presence, Lord. Come. Thank you, Jesus.